Blaze Radio presents He Heat Check. This is Heat Check, and on this one Luther King Day episode of the show, we find ourselves at a familiar place. Basketball and anarchy, and a tradition unlike any other, Purdue playing during the show somehow, even though we're recording at 1049 local time. 9 a.m. kickoff, or tip-off, different sport, still transitioning for Purdue and Illinois, so we'll be aware of what's going on in that one, but if... What we've seen this weekend and this past week serves as any kind of insight. The higher-ranked team is going down. That, in this case, is Purdue, who is trailing right now in Champaign. They're winning now. They're winning now? Yeah, they're back up. Oh, okay. That kind of deflates <laughs> the point. Um, Zach Eady's got 14. That's not important at the moment. Let's talk about Baylor. Yes. Number one team in the country, dropping two games at home. Texas Tech loss kind of carries a hangover into the Oklahoma State game on Saturday. It's the first time ever a number one team in the nation has been toppled twice at home in a week. How worried are you? Uh, if you're going scale of 1 to 10, probably like a 5. I, th- I don't think that uh, watching the Oklahoma State game, seeing the shot quality numbers, seeing it with my eyes, they it won, felt they like they missed game, what, 80, 83% of the, time? of the time based on the shots taken in that game, they win the game. So I think that it would be really poor to evaluate that game through the prism of believing that that was a repeatable um, recipe. I guess the, the thing that bothers me or the thing that I guess worries me the most about Baylor is the fact that last year when things got tough and things got close, there was always moments in which Jared Butler would take over, Davion Mitchell would take over, or Macy Oteague would take over. And for as good as LJ Cryer is, for as good as James Akinjo is, and as good as Kendall Brown is, Matt Meyer, all those guys, I don't think any of them... There's a reason that we have not really been throwing around their names, maybe aside from James Akinjo, for, mm-hmm. for a All-American season. And I think that that is indicative of just the lack of star power maybe that this Baylor team has and the fact that it's it's an overwhelming team physically, defensively. It's an overwhelming team uh, with just the wide array of guys who can get it done offensively, but none of them that have the, I guess, takeover moments at the end of games and is able to um, really solidify things when they're when they're reeling and when it's close late. Like the LJ Cryer turnover when they were down one, had a chance to go up one with, I think, 40-some seconds left in the game, was just him rushing. And I felt like that was probably um, a product of feeling tight because you had lost the Texas Tech game earlier that week. Mm-hmm. You had seen that it, it, it was capable of happening before. Um, and then Oklahoma State did a lot of good things defensively and is a better defensive team than offense. So... It, it makes sense that they were able to create some belief or some fear in, in Baylor that they weren't going to be able to get things done. So I, I, I would say I'm not I'm not saying that this is nothing, but I'm not saying that it's everything, and I think that Baylor will likely bounce back. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we get to see them play West Virginia this afternoon. Um, I think it tips off at three Arizona time, so that's a 5 o'clock local time tip in West Virginia. Of course, it's a holiday, so that doesn't necessarily um, – impact attendance but we'll see what happens here if they lose that one three straight that would be some panic time in Waco but I don't necessarily foresee that happening so Baylor 
is ninth worst in the nation in terms of the percentage of shots they get at the rim. It is the second worst mark of teams in the power conferences. Ohio State only gets 25% of their looks at the cup. Baylor is at 28%. And I think that this is part of the revolution of this team over the last couple of years where they work the ball around. They get three-point shots at a high volume. 75% of their threes are assisted which is an insanely high number as well. And Baylor does convert when they get to the rim, but what they're missing is exactly what you said. And the thing that I pointed out throughout the year, I don't know what Baylor is just truly as a team. And given they didn't have Sohan for this game, that's important. It's a starter. But I don't know what Baylor truly is as a team because I don't think they have that guard that can just get to the rim at will and get easy buckets and create that way. And that really showed up in this game. Of course, they missed a ton of open shots. They should have beat Oklahoma State. For that reason, I'm not hitting the panic button. But this is what can happen to Baylor on their worst day. And it truly is emblematic on this weekend in which we saw Texas Tech turn around and lose to Kansas State in Manhattan. We saw Kansas struggle at times throughout the week. They got the win over Iowa State. They blew up West Virginia. But prior to that, that loss at Texas Tech is, if you don't bring it for a full 40 minutes, you will get gotten in the Big 12 this year. Absolutely. And for those who... Saw Texas Tech beat Kansas, beat Baylor, stomp on Oklahoma State at home, and then they go to K-State and they lose, and everyone's like, oh, that's a bad loss. It's like, well, K-State on the road is, I believe, a quad one or a quad two win. Like, it is is a quality win to beat K-State in Manhattan. And honestly, K-State is, I believe, six or seven points away from being a, a team that's three and two in the Big 12 rather than one and four. So it's it's not shocking that they were able to get somebody. Um, I it wouldn't shock me if K State beat KU on Saturday in Manhattan. Um, but to to go to to get to your point, when the mid range jump shot and the three point jump shot of James Akinjo is not going, he becomes uh, significantly easier to guard. And mm-hmm. in this case, he was one of six from three, one of eight from the field, three points, no assists, never really got anything going. I know LJ Cryer had four of nine shooting from three and 18 points, but and kind of picked up the slack in that regard. But this Baylor team can't afford to have one starter scoring in double figures and have an eight for 28 performance from three because quietly, they're not, they're a much better defensive team than a, than someone like Alabama is, but they, right. they do shoot a lot of jump shots. And so if they, and, and, the thing about the weird thing about them not shooting a bunch of shots at the rim is that they finish really well at yeah. the rim when they do. Seventy five percent of their so, shots inside two feet go. Yeah, so they just like it's usually a matter of you're shooting jump shots so well, so effectively that if you get to the rim, you break down the defense to the point where those are good looks. But yeah. that when the jump shots aren't falling, it, it gets a little tougher. And credit to Oklahoma State, like not a team that can make the NCAA tournament because of the review. We know that. Our opinions on that, that seems to be not something that makes a lot of sense. But given that that is the case, they're fighting their butts off and they've already got wins over Texas. They've got a win over Baylor now. Um, They're going to get some people in the Big 12 play. And so I think think a a true indicator of who's going to win the Big 12 when you come down to um, the Texas-KU-Baylor battle, I guess. I, I mean, Iowa State already has three losses in conference play, is probably going to be who can go 2-0 against Oklahoma State, who can go 2-0 against K-State, 
um, probably 2-0 and against TCU because those are all quality teams at the bottom. And if you can avoid losing to them because you're, you're going to get tripped up in the middle of the league at some point, um, I think that's key. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers out right now. Great website, hoopmath.com, gives you breakdowns of how teams are performing from different regions of the court. I think it's pretty informative. This is fascinating because I think we're all of the consensus opinion that Baylor, as a team, their team defense is better than it was last year, right? That That's opinion that's well withheld. Baylor is fourth worst nationally at field goal percentage allowed at the rim. Just under 70%, 69 nice. Um, Oklahoma State was able to get that kind of look. They were able to get in transition. That helped a lot. But they went at Shamoshashu. They went at Flo Thamba. And they got inside and were able to create amongst the trees and get buckets that built a huge lead for them that ended up being enough to have them outlast Baylor. Yeah, and the the runouts, the points in transition yep. were were extremely imp- impressive. And um, the points off of turnovers were impressive because – Baylor, the turnover deficit was only 11 to 10, so they only turned the ball over one more time than Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. But it felt like Oklahoma State's turnovers were not live ball turnovers, and Oklahoma and Baylor's were. So Baylor's live ball turnovers were leading to dunks and runouts and and everything in that. Well, and that's the other thing, Gabe. Uh, Riley says this, quoting Jay Billis all the time: "A missed three, a bad shot, is usually the first pass in the other team's fast break." And that was very evident in the first half, as Baylor just couldn't make anything. Yeah, and I, like the the reason I don't know if this is necessarily repeatable, but why it's also concerning is because Oklahoma State wins this game with one person scoring in double figures. Like Bryce Thompson got 19. That's Bold. impressive. He was extremely impressive late, made four f- huge free throws in the game's last 30 seconds. Um, but you're not going to beat Baylor most of the time with one person scoring in double figures. But – you might be – it seems to be that teams are better off mucking the game up against them than they are running with Baylor because so far Baylor has lost twice, and the two times they've lost, they've scored less than 62 points. So I don't know if it's necessarily a trend. Mm-hmm. I will say I will say that even as late as last week, we were talking about the fact that they played TCU close on the road, and like that's not an easy win, and TCU showed that to Oklahoma right. on Saturday. But – I, you're going to have to bring it every single night. And this week, Baylor goes on the road twice. So if you can't take advantage of home court, losing twice on your home court is a really easy way in a round-robin league to lose the league. You've yeah. got to defend home court. Because the reason Kansas has always won those Big 12 titles, the reason there was a 14-year streak, is because you could just count on 9-0. and KU was going 9-0 and at home every single year. And... If that happens again this year, and they're already two and zero, whereas Baylor is zero and two or one and two because they beat Oklahoma at home, um, they're at a significant disadvantage. I I think it's I'm comfortable saying that this Baylor team is not as good as last year's. Yeah, you know, it it would have been kind of ridiculous for us to think that it was. Realistically, I mean that's one of the great teams. Yeah, what Baylor had last year and. Something that's uh, profoundly interesting to me is those comments that Scott Drew made in the ESPN Plus show they do about Baylor where he said, hey, doesn't feel like our team is as together as it was prior to the Christmas break. And we saw a little hiccup like this from Baylor after the COVID pause 
last year where it just didn't look like they were Baylor for about two, three weeks. They turned it on the tournament, it all worked out, sure. But comments like that from a head coach are pretty jarring. And the fact that they were allowed to be in the documentary, which, like, good for them, but um, not the thing that I was expecting to hear when they ran the promo. So that was kind It'll of It'll get shocking. you to listen, though. Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm interested to see what they do today at West Virginia. Not an easy place to go get a win. But I'm starting to think West Virginia might be one of the worst teams in the league. I'm kind of well, starting to meander out on West Virginia. Um, I think the West Virginia's problem is that their best players are going to be overmatched by the best players on... Like, they don't match up well with the best teams in the league. Like, McNeil and Taz Sherman got completely erased from the game because Christian Brown and Ochai Agbaji played great defense against them. They're going to be they're going to be outmatched probably today when Matt Meyer matches up with with McNeil probably. I would think that's going to be a matchup and they don't have an interior scoring threat. So, you're not scared about anything that's going on inside and you can focus your attention on the guards. Well, I'll tell you what, they probably wish they still had Oscar Sheebway and that gives us an opportunity to talk about Kentucky. Yes. Who just ran rough shot over Tennessee. A place where Tennessee's actually had a lot of success under Rick Barnes, Rupp Arena. Even when they're not supposed to, this was supposed to be an evenly matched game. But Kentucky, with an offensive performance like we've not seen from Big Blue in years, has vaulted themselves up. And at least your perception, you ranked them inside the top five this week, no? I believe I had them at three or four. Um, I I would have to go back and, and check. I can, I can pull this up. But... Um, Let's see. I had Kentucky at – wow, it's a lot further back than I had thought. I had Kentucky at three. Mm-hmm. So right behind Gonzaga and Baylor in my mind. Um, Ty Ty Washington was the guy who I thought that they were, he was going to be preseason. Mm-hmm. 28 points, 10 of 13 shooting, um, 6 of 6 at the line, 5 assists as well. Shibwe didn't even play that great, but – as good as as good as he was, as good as the team of Kentucky was in this game, Kellen Grady started making everything at the start of this game, um, which he can do, which is is certainly a possibility for him. And when he shoots four of seven from three, and I think it was four for four to start or four of five to start, um, good things are going to happen for Kentucky. What I will say is the Shibwe National Player of the Year buzz is interesting to me because I don't necessarily think that Kentucky's Ceiling is hit when Shibwe plays at his best. I think it's clearly hit when Ty Ty Washington plays great and Severe Wheeler plays great and Kellen Grady plays great. Like they're they go as the guards go because because rebounding like you can count on Oscar Shibwe to rebound the ball more than ten times a game. He had twelve in this game and that's below his season average. Mm-hmm. The nine points that he gets offensively, I know he hit a mid range jumper. Yeah, it was wild. Um, and Shulman was Shulman was saying like you got to defend him there. If I'm a coach, no, you don't. You <laughs> yeah. don't have to defend him there. I think that's a shot that you'll live with him taking. Um, I would just say I I I would pump the brakes on the Shibwe and Poi buzz because I think that there are going to be games, and this is an example of it that Kentucky is defined by what the guards do, and yeah, and absolutely. Wheeler and Ty Ty outplayed Kennedy Chandler and Santiago Vescovi. And that's that's 
to me, a large portion of, of what happened in this game. But if I'm Tennessee, like, if you tell me going into the game, I'm going to shoot 48% from three and 53% from the field against Kentucky on the road, I'm going to take that. And they still lost by 28 because Kentucky shot 67% from the, or 68% from the field and 61% from three. So, yeah. it, I don't know necessarily if the score should be as lopsided. I don't know. Do they play each other again in Knoxville? Yeah, they do. They do? Every year. It, I would think that it'll be a lot closer. Uh, I'll also note Davion Mintz played very well, mm-hmm. which is helpful for them. They, this Kentucky team is going to realistically be about a seven-man rotation most of the time. Sometimes Ware will play a little bit. But it's going to be the starting five that they played in this game. Shibwe, Brooks, Ty Ty, Wheeler, and Grady plus Mintz and Toppin, and that's just going to kind of carry this team along. And when each of those guys goes for seven-plus points, you're not winning. You're just not. Uh, They shot well over 70% up until when the backups got to play the walk-ons. It was unbelievable. And the biggest thing is this team got out and ran, but a big point that this made very clear to me crystallized it. If Severe Wheeler is not going to be facing an elite big-man rim protector – Kentucky becomes a lot more effective because we've seen this before. We saw it when Kentucky played Mark Williams and Duke. Severe is just too short on the inside to get shots that can fall for him at the rim. Like, on dribble drives that look wide open, he'll get blocked. And it opens up dimensions of their offense when he's able to create at the level he was in this game. Yeah, I mean, they're slightly matchup dependent in that sense. They still have five guys who average double figures. Oh, for sure. And that's... That's why the best I, offensive team that Calipari's had in a while. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think that the thing that stands out to me in terms of Kentucky and the reason that we've quietly ended up with them becoming the number three team in my eyes and in the AP poll they are currently 12. Like, they're way down in the AP because they've played no one. Like, their, their non-conference strength of schedule yep. was in the 300s. They were not playing good teams. Um they had games against Robert Morris, Mount St. Mary, like North Florida, Central Michigan, Southern. They're, they they did not challenge themselves in the non-conference aside from, of course, the, the marquee Champions Classic game and then the CBS Sports Classic against UNC. But aside from that, I know they went on the road to play Notre Dame. Probably should have won that game. But I think that they've flown under under people's radars, mm-hmm. and now they're now they're kind of finding their stride and, and doing that thing where they play really good in, in late January, they play really well in, in February, and come March they're going to be a two seed that is scary, maybe a one seed depending on if they win the SEC. So I and I wouldn't be surprised if they win the SEC at this point. Yeah, they're um, the favorite. I think. I, I think I think if you ask me to pick a team to win the SEC now, I I, I know that a lot of people would pick Auburn. I know yeah. that Auburn would be the trendy pick. Um, I think I would bet on Kentucky, and I believe that they they play Auburn shortly. Yeah, they play Auburn on Saturday. Yeah. It, it, it will almost certainly, to me, be one of those two at this point in time. That's where we're trending. LSU got exposed a little bit. High five. Good on you. Well, you pick that. Sell. sell. That, sell. Stock, that stock shorted well. Uh, I, I, and we can talk about how successful our portfolios look uh, here in a couple minutes. But The next three Saturdays. Kentucky goes on the road to Auburn this weekend, yeah. on the road to Kansas this week, the next weekend, on the road to Alabama the next through the next weekend. Like those are three great tests. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that Alabama should be hitting the panic button 
hard Harder. right now. Uh, let's just say in the SEC. So explain to me why you had Auburn at nine in eight, your poll this eight, week. Eight. eight. The reason, though, that they were not ranked first. I, Gonzaga still would have. Three of five first place votes on our poll went to Gonzaga. Yeah, you didn't have Auburn first either. Yeah, you did. No, you had Arizona. Oh, yes, I did. You're true. So, like, the the outrage that I'm the reason that Auburn's not number one, it's like eh. only Scott had them one. You had Arizona one. I, I had, had three, though. You had them. I had Gonzaga. I had Auburn at eight because I truly believe you go down the list, um, and I'm a big-time believer in Ken Palm. I'm a big-time believer in predictive metrics, and those predictive metrics, you can ask yourself, who over the course of this year has proven the predictive metrics wrong consistently? And that has not really happened. Like I know Auburn has gone up the ranks, and they have a chance to go up the ranks. They are, in my opinion, would I take them against Gonzaga? No. Would I take them against Baylor? No. We're, we'll see what happens. Villanova, Kentucky, Purdue, Kansas, Arizona, I think they're all in the same kind of conversation as them. But the only team above them in the metrics that I confidently would say I would pick them above is Houston, and that's because of the injuries to Houston. So, yeah. can, uh, I make, can I make a point on Houston before you carry forward? Yeah. We, I think, have been a little bit too quick to just write them off. Uh, clearly, Houston is a team that has a hard ceiling without the players that they've lost without Sasser, without Mark. But they did lose Mills at the beginning of last year to the transfer portal, like straight off, and then just went to the Final Four. Given that was a little fluky matchup dependent, whatever, Oregon State made their life a lot easier. Point still stands. Kelvin Sampson can coach his team up, and they will be fine. I don't know if they'll hold this highly in the predictive metrics in Ken Palm Torvik, but what I can promise you is they'll defend the heck out of you and they recruit guys that can kind of just step in. So, I mean, I, I do think that they Auburn is better than Houston. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I also think that Houston's still a favorite in the American because Memphis is just trash. Well, yeah, like that bet has kind of gone out the window for I'm, you. I'm just praying for Kendrick Williams and uh, SMU at this yeah, point. Yeah, someone else to, to take them down. I mean, Auburn has... I don't know. The, the like Jabari Smith could very well be the number one pick in this NBA draft, and I wouldn't be surprised. It looks that way right now. He changed the end of that game against Alabama on Tuesday night. Scared Javon Quinley out of shooting a jump shot and led him to to the paint to throw up a, a just a wild shot that had no chance of scoring. Um, but I I still feel confidently that if if neutral court happens. The neutral court contest happens that Auburn is not of the same elite, elite caliber level. And like they, they defend pretty decently. They play offense at a top 15 clip, but on the margins, like a couple things could happen this week. They could go beat Kentucky, and I would certainly react to that favorably for them. So they can change my opinion. But I, I can understand people who are mad that. Auburn ends up with 11 more first place votes than Gonzaga yeah. did in the AP poll and that because a couple people also subscribe to some predictive metrics. A couple people, one person. Well, one notable person really put them down there. Um, 
I think that that is a glaring poll thought is that something wild like that happens and it stands out to people. But to me, someone like Jesse Newell, the one person that we're alluding to who consistently follows the book and says he will go with predictive metrics mm-hmm. rather than his eye test because his eye test does not get to watch every possession from every sure. team. Having a tried and true reason for the way that you do your rankings to me is more respectable than just pretending as if your eyes seeing something, uh, seeing five possessions. Because like, to be honest, Tuesday night I had class. I got home. I saw the last five and a half, six minutes of the Auburn mm-hmm. Alabama game. I saw I saw immediately turned on the TV. Alabama goes on a 14 0 run. If I just went off my eye test, I would significantly, uh, I would think that Alabama was a better team than, than Auburn, but I saw the rest of that game. I see that the numbers are different. So, like, just judging it on results, just making the AP poll a de facto standings of college basketball, like, if that's what you yeah. want to do, be my guest. But if someone else doesn't want to do that, like, I understand it's not the conventional wisdom, but having a, a consistent model is better to me than jumping around and having no logic and yeah, reasoning like some other people do. Because listen. frankly, there's probably people who voted Auburn number one in the AP poll who did a lot of stupid stuff between 10 and 25 that are inconsistent and, and no logic or reasoning for it. And to me, not calling that out, which we're not going to because people don't, is just as dumb as omitting Auburn from number one. It just robs Auburn's fan base of something. Well, yeah, and that's the part that, I mean, it, I appreciate that Jesse Newell, who is the one voter out of the 60 that had Auburn below, what, the top four? Mm-hmm. He had them, I believe, at eight. No, he had them at nine. At nine, so I confused you and him. Um, and there's a lot of similarities in the logic that you two use. I'm not knocking it at all right now. Uh, it, the part of it that sucks, and I appreciate that he has a consistency to what he does, right? Is that, like you mentioned, that code is what cost Auburn their first ever number one ranking. That part sucks. You can't, like you said, you can't give handouts. I appreciate that sentiment as well. If he doesn't believe that they're the, whatever, uh, one of the eight best teams in the country because Ken Palm and some of the predictives say that, sure. Torvik has them at seven. I don't know where they're at in Sangren. Some of the other metrics there. But... If Ken Palm is the end-all, be-all for you, and that is your blind spot mirror, so to speak, to put a label on the thing that you spoke to, which is, hey, you know, I can't watch every possession. I respect that. I'm not going to come down on Jesse Newell, but it, the byproduct of it, that kind of sucks. Sure. And Sagan maybe there should be like 10. an overruling force that if you're the number one team in the country in more than 10 polls compared to the next team, which Auburn had 11 more first-place votes – then maybe you should carry more electoral votes in this process. Maybe. I mean, Auburn was 10th in Sagarin. So, like, everything indicates that because they don't do – they don't overwhelm the the numbers, it makes sense that they're not a top five team in in the eyes of of, uh, Kenneth and – Shout out, Kenneth. And Bart. So, so I'm not surprised by that. I, I, I don't know. I, Gary Parish going hater mode on Newell is par for the course. Like that makes plenty of sense. I'm not surprised. Um, we I love you both. I like to find my yeah. Like I think I am the Gary Parish of the heat check poll, and I like to call out bad poll. 
processes from people that vote in our poll while at the same time being the Jesse Newell of our poll and and largely relying upon the advanced analytics um, and such. So Steve Schwartz, judge, jury, and executioner of his own world. I guess so. <laughs> you could say that in some, some regard. Okay. Elsewhere in the SEC, Alabama loses to Mississippi State, a team that I pumped up before the season. Team chock full of transfers that I watched that game is really starting to come together. Iverson Molinar, firmly in the SEC Player of the Year race, in my opinion, went off in this one. Mm -hmm. But let's focus on Alabama for a second. This is a team that we had high expectations for. I picked them preseason Final Four. At this point in time, I'm not sure any of the teams I picked in the preseason are going to go to the Final Four. But uh, Alabama is all over the place, and you just don't know what you're going to get on a given night. And I'm not saying they're in trouble for the tournament, but they are going to fall out of the top 25 in our poll, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. They're in our poll. They're in our poll. That's ridiculous. They shouldn't be. No. They're a six-loss team that's lost to Davidson and Iona. They are a team that does something at an elite level. Um, They are 25th. They're a six-loss team that lost to Davidson and Iona. They are 25th. Shout out Davidson. They beat Gonzaga. They did. Their best is as good as anyone, anybody in the country. Their worst has been pretty bad. They, they lost to Missouri. Yeah, that I get that. But here's the thing: like Alabama loses by two on the road in a game in which their best player went one of nine from three, and shooting the ball from three is a pretty big deal for them. So, I once again am not overreacting to something that Alabama did. I just think that their best is like they're going to go on a run and they're going to prove some people wrong and they're going to vault back into the top 25. Um, uh, that, doesn't, that wouldn't surprise me. I just based on what and, they've done. And you point. believe it too. You picked them to beat LSU this week and then they get the revenge game on Saturday against Mizzou well, at that home. might speak a little bit. <laughs> the revenge game against Mizzou should never be a sentence uttered of a good program. I, I think KU had a revenge game against Mizzou earlier this year. <laughs> not playing them for a couple years. Anyway, uh, despite what Christian Brown thinks of Missouri, uh, Alabama got beat by them. Alabama's gotten beat by a lot of people, and me picking Alabama over LSU might have more to be said about Alabama than LSU, or vice versa, more to say about LSU than Alabama. Here's the thing. So the break-even point for me with predictive metrics and with ranking teams is a team like Michigan. They're 7-7. Seven and seven, Their numbers are good. You know what I mean? And I but don't, they've been and I, bad. but they've been bad. So I don't rank. I don't rank them. Alabama's four of their next six games: LSU at at home, ranked team, thirteenth in the country. Then they get Mizzou and Georgia. They should win both of those. Then they get Baylor, the number five team in the country, at home. They go to Auburn, and then they get Kentucky at home. So that is four of their next six are against top thirteen teams. We will get a solid understanding of who Alabama is to a greater extent, and I think that they are a team that matches up with elite talent probably better than or matches matches that than than they do against uh lower tier talent because i think sadly they're a team that plays up and down to the competition level Mm -hmm. um which doesn't bode well for long-term tournament success i've never seen a team do it so consistently but they really like iona they struggle with south alabama at the start of the year they struggle with south alabama they struggle with iona they didn't necessarily just kill Drake um beat Drake. and then they and then they 
beat Gonzaga, they beat Houston, and then they turn around and they, they lose to Memphis. So I forgot about the Memphis like, loss. All of that kind of stuff happens, and I understand why people would be down on them. I'm just blinded by their one like elite trait and what they do really well. So I having them at 25 in our poll doesn't shock me. Um, and like, if you ask me who do I think is better, Alabama or UConn, who is our 26 team, I'm going to say Alabama. They do something at an elite level that UConn does not. So, yeah, I don't know what we can say about UConn because of how injured they've been and COVID crushed they've been. I really like there is no team that is in the national discussion that I know as little about as I know about UConn, and UConn beat Auburn. Yeah, it was kind of the last time we saw them at full strength. I guess so. I UConn literally had a player faint after that game. It was all downhill from there. I guess so. Where do you want to go from here? You want to uh, we need to touch Arkansas LSU. Okay. Uh, so, Arkansas, Eric Musselman was a problem. That's what we've learned. No, that's that's reckless. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Arkansas goes to the Bayou. They beat LSU at a place that I don't think LSU have been beaten this year. Um, and they do it on the back of pretty gritty defense and do it without their head coach, Eric Musselman, who had surgery to pair a torn rotator cuff this week. Uh, incredible win for this program that puts them firmly back onto the bubble. Yeah, and now they get a stretch of uh, not a crazy elite schedule. I think that the thing the thing that stands out to me in terms of Arkansas and the fact that they were able to be a team that usually wins with offense um, and, and usually wins by pushing the tempo is they won kind of a grinded out game. Mm-hmm. Um, J.D. Note, 19 points, 7 of 13 shooting. I think J.D. Note deserves a lot more run. I think that the thing I've – I hate to just, like, crush on short short guys, but if you're going to if you're yeah. gonna say things about Severe Wheeler and say that if – Same for if, Chris Likes. It's like, it's, it's a bigger deal for Chris Likes. He's smaller. He finishes at the rim worse than Severe Wheeler does. Yeah. Um, I know that he can shoot the ball a little bit better in theory, but he was 0 for 3 in this game, 2 of 11 in 21 minutes. Um, I just think that they should give some more run to Tony, give some more run to Note, and play through those guards rather than anything else. I, the Vanover experiment, one minute yeah, that's done. <laughs> off the bench, that's done. does not seem to be happening anymore. So they are truly a seven-man rotation at this point, um, which – doesn't necessarily make me the most enthusiastic Arkansas supporter. I think that they are probably a team that we are debating bubble-wise for large portions of the rest of the season, and we will have to see SEC tournament-wise what their draw is, if they can get a quality win over one of the top four teams in the league. So if they could get LSU again, could they get Auburn? Could they get Bama? Could they get Kentucky? Um it feels like we're we're destined for an Arkansas Mississippi State game that determines a lot of NCAA tournament seeding at some point. Wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. But winning without Musselman, I don't know. That if, makes that like it doesn't no. really matter, but it's impressive nonetheless because on the road, like winning at LSU is hard. Yeah, that's a that's a tough place to play historically under Will Wade. Yeah, and once again, I'm just not in on LSU. Not a fan. Uh, so the the big X factor for me for Arkansas 
they're not going to get the guard play they had last year. Like, J.D. Note is a really good player. It's not Moses Moody. The creation, no. the raw creation that Moses Moody brought is clearly very important in looking at their success last year. And I think we maybe even underrated it at the time because of how much they're struggling this year. The real guy to me that needs to step forward is Jalen Williams, who we thought was going to be the dude this year coming in. He got to play. He got to start as a true freshman on that team last year. And it really looked like he was primed to make that step forward to being a 15-point-a-game guy, and he's been about half of that, 7.6 points per game. The rebounding's been great, 8.8. But these last three games, he's been in double digits. They've won two of them, 13 points, 11 points in his last two. They've won both of those. So he puts up 11 and 13 in this game, 13 and 10 against Missouri. If he can start to really be that kind of double-double threat type of dude, Arkansas is a much more capable team in my eyes. Yeah, and like 11 and 13 from him against LSU was impressive. Um, just the entire, I mean, Mizzou is Mizzou in the SEC is a pretty decent barometer for how well you're playing as a team because if you are even remotely in a close game with them, something is wrong with yeah. you and you're not playing up to your, your full potential. Arkansas beat Missouri literally doubled them up 87-43 that was working out some frustration on that one yeah a little therapy session uh (laughs) i would certainly agree with that um 49 to 15 advantage in the first half the lead never dipped below 35 i think in the second half it was extremely impressive from from the razorbacks but i don't know i think that they're a bubble team i think that they are i think that they will be somewhere between a 9 and a 12 seed in the NCAA tournament. That's fair. I, I also could see a world where they get on a run here and get back into the top 25. Their schedule dictates that it should happen. South Carolina at home, A&M at home, Mississippi on the road, that's kind of a tough one. West Virginia in the Big 12 SEC Challenge, that's Little at home. Boy. And then Georgia. So, like, they've got a five-game stretch in which they should be favored to win all of those games except for maybe Mississippi. Like, Ole, yep. Ma- Ole Miss could get them. But... They should win four of their next five, and that puts them at 16-6. and six, And, like, we know what people think of just the value of winning games and earning AP poll votes. Like, Miami showed that. Yeah. If you just win games, people are going to start respecting you, whether it's rightful or not. Let's quickly talk about Auburn, okay? Yes. Auburn was down big first half against Ole Miss on the road. They have a 7-0 run at the end of the first half. It gets them back into the game. They're able to ride that momentum into the second half. Or I should have said the first half. They had a 7-0 run at the end of the first half. That got them back into the game. Um, and they end up winning by 9 in a game that I think they trailed by 14 in. This team, I understand what the predictors say, is as complete, if not more so, than anybody in the country. And what I will say to you is because of what they've got in their front court, Walker Kessler, Jabari Smith... Gonzaga has shown us that when they have played teams with elite bigs that can actually guard them, they have lost. Mark Williams, Duke, Mediaco, and Alabama. Auburn is a team with the kind of front court that can go toe-to-toe with Gonzaga and beat them. Yeah, they can match up. So, I'll ask you this. They play right now, tomorrow. COVID cancellation brings about a matchup between Auburn and Gonzaga in the Sprint Center. Let's just make it equidistant. Who are you picking? 
Gonzaga. <laughs> okay, I feel like you painted yourself into a corner and had the same. No, I, I think that... Is it because like, of guard play? Because I think Auburn's got better guard play. I don't know if Auburn has better guard play. Like, Andrew Nemhardt has been... He's been really good. Impressive, impressive the last couple weeks. Um, I know your take is that Gonzaga is whooping up on teams that don't literally don't have... No, 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 but literally does not have yeah. a chance, which is to a certain extent true. Um, I think Auburn is in the convert... Like, Auburn is another team that builds on my point that there is as many teams that are capable of beating Gonzaga this year um, as there have ever been. Like, last year we knew that there was only a select few teams that could do it. Um, I don't think we even thought that UCLA was one of those teams, but they certainly pushed them with an absolute aberration of a game. And I don't think UCLA gave Gonzaga their best shot back in November. I think Duke did. I think Alabama did. So we will get to a point in which in the NCAA tournament, the draw that Gonzaga gets is important. If they get a stretch run of where they play like Alabama again, maybe in a Sweet 16 matchup. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get Arizona in an Elite Eight or a Final Four. Maybe they get Auburn in one of those situations. Like that could be. That's a spot where I will not be picking Gonzaga to win the national championship at that point because I nothing makes me think that Gonzaga historically is is going to be able to sure. run the table, especially if there's all these teams that match up with them super well. So I like the construction of college basketball this year and the fact that we have. So many different teams that I can point to and say, well, such and such a team is a bad matchup for them. Or such and such a team is a a matchup that really complements each other and should create a great game. Um, But West Coast basketball seems to be, or everything west of the Mississippi seems to be really good so far this year. Um, or at least there's elite teams west of the Mississippi. Mississippi. And maybe, maybe Oregon's in there, Gonzaga, uh, UCLA, US, the, the whole Big Twelve is west of the Mississippi, technically, uh, except for point. except for West Virginia also Big Ten and Iowa like State. Is too. That's the west of the Mississippi is like a third of the country or two thirds of the country. Yeah, I just like the <laughs> I just like the fact that we have teams that match up really well with Gonzaga and Auburn's one of those. I still would pick Gonzaga against Auburn. Like Jabari Smith would have to have an absurd game, and I don't think it can't happen. I just think you would be asking. A lot from one guy. So Gonzaga has now scored 100-plus points, 110-plus points, in fact, in their last three. I can't remember the last time a team did that, right? I don't think it's ever happened. Considering we were worried about had it ever happened for two games. uh, Yeah, and I know it hasn't happened for Mark Few at Gonzaga. So offensively, this team is going to present in a way where the statistics are going to be so dominant and so absurd that they're going to look ridiculous in Kempom, Torvik, and all of it. I will also say, in these games, they've given up 80-plus to Pepperdine. BYU's a good offense in Santa Clara. That should be a little concerning. They play San Francisco this week. San Francisco's a good team. Still think they've got no chance. But I think that if they go for 100 against San Francisco, you've really got my attention now. Why am I forgetting where that game is being played? It's in the kennel. Yeah, it's not like it's not going to be close. Probably, um, maybe. The like at this point, if you're asking me who can beat Gonzaga, I'm circling Saturday, February fifth at BYU, and going from there because I saw enough from BYU on Thursday night against Gonzaga 
when they scored 84 and knocked down a bunch. You mean the game they got beat by 26? Yes. I, I saw enough in that game to think that team can score with Gonzaga at home and the maybe they get a favorable whistle, maybe maybe a little more game pressure gets put on Gonzaga in a spot where they would be playing a true road game with crazy fans for the first time in probably what since two years ago when they played at BYU like a crazy atmosphere yeah like since the last time when we had uh when we thought BYU was trending toward like a three or four seed in that 2020 tournament yeah um I think that that could be a spot where I would be a little worried about Gonzaga but aside from that like this league just doesn't present enough challenges um and if if we had if we what Gonzaga does is essentially play, and I know people put more respect on the WCC. I know that the WCC is probably getting three teams in, especially. Uh, I think uh, it, I, I think don't know Sa- if BYU is a lock to make the field. I think BYU is bad non-conference losses. They lost to Utah Valley, lost to Vandy. I understand they killed Oregon, but it wasn't exactly impressive after that. Utah State one helps. They beat Utah. They beat Oregon. They beat San Diego State. Like those are three good wins. True. San Diego State one. Um. If they, I mean, they won this past weekend at, at San Francisco by two. That yeah, was a, that was an important win. But maybe they just end up with two bids. One of BYU or USF will be in the tournament. I think so because the ACC spins so down. So there's extra bids available, right. in my opinion. Right, right, right. Um, I just like it pains me to make Gonzaga my number one team in the country. It. Makes me them. it makes me mad that they're the number one team because they're probably just going to sit there unless they do something weird or some other team does something overwhelmingly impressive. Like Auburn could get there with an impressive week and a and a big win over Kentucky on Saturday, that would probably vault them to number one, I would think. But Gonzaga more than likely is just going to hang out there, and that's probably going to frustrate most people, and rightfully so because, like. I think people enjoy the idea of the number one team in the country changing frequently. Uh, we certainly enjoyed, just go back to this fall in college football, top 10 teams losing consistently. And that was a very fun thing to see happen. I think people love the idea of parity. And last year, Baylor and Gonzaga didn't necessarily give it to us. So when we have this situation where we've had Purdue be number one, Gonzaga be number one, Duke be number one, um, I don't know if I'm forgetting anyone. Baylor's been number one. And then we have a week where the number one team in the country loses twice. That piques everyone's interest. And then we hand the number one ranking back to Gonzaga, who is probably not giving it up for a while. So we need one loss from Gonzaga to move them down. And it probably won't happen. So that frustrates people. I get that. Frustrates me just as much as anything else. But I, I think that at this point, there's not any contender that is truly worthy of number one in the way that Gonzaga is. Okay. That's my logic. I mean, I got you. I hear you. Um, I'm not going to push back too hard anymore. It's just a a fruitless endeavor. Like, you're going to be set in your ways. I may question them at times, but ultimately they are your ways. So. Can we talk about Villanova? We can. Uh, 40-point win over Butler. It is on the day that they claimed Villanova did their seventh 700th. I can't talk today. Big East win. It is the largest margin of victory that they've ever had in a Big East contest. And it like it was not close from the from the jump. Like it was. Butler's I think ba- it's sad to see Butler fall this far. Butler is a really bad defensive team. 
This is a bad team. They don't get stops. Well, I think that they've had the number that I saw was like three of their program's worst ten defensive performances were in the last Mm -hmm. like four games or five games. It's it's a stretch of really bad basketball for Butler, and aside from like. I think it's Villanova Xavier in the Big East. I understand Seton Hall is up there. Bryce Aiken was really good against Marquette on Saturday. They still lost. Um, I understand that Marquette can get people on a certain day, and I like I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if Villanova went to Marquette and lost, or lost to Marquette at some point in the Big East tournament. But I think it is Villanova, and then Xavier, and then there's a little bit of a drop off in UConn, mostly because we haven't seen what UConn's ceiling is because you've mentioned uh, COVID and injuries, but Villanova's back to being that team. And if Colin Gillespie plays at the level that he played against Butler, if he plays at that level consistently, I know that we both have had our worries about whether he can do that against elite competition. Mm -hmm. Um, Villanova will be that team. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily believe in them as a national title contender because I don't think that they overwhelm people in the way that a national title contender sure. has to do so. But I think that they have an extremely high floor in the NCAA tournament because they're not going to get beat by someone who's not extremely fundamentally sound, uh, plays good defense, because if you don't play good defense, they will take advantage of you. And I I think that the, the fewer teams that you have that can are capable of beating you in the NCAA tournament, obviously the further you're possible to go. And I just don't think there's a lot of teams that – um, a lot of average teams are like mid-major teams that would beat Villanova. I still have no idea what to do with Villanova, so I'm going to hold off. Um, they've not played – I mean, they've played some of the hard games in the, their Big East run, right? They've gone to Seton Hall. They've won. They've beaten Xavier twice, who I think is their biggest rival. Xavier pretty much spotted them the league, in my opinion. We'll see. I also think they're very susceptible to getting got at different points. Uh, Marquette at home this week doesn't pose a huge threat to me. Um, I'm just looking at the schedule now off your screen. Take a peek. At Georgetown on Saturday. Uh, They will not, most likely, they will not lose until they go to Marquette on the 2nd of February. That's the first losable game in this next streak. I love you, St. John's. It's just not happening this year. Um, UConn, though, the end of the schedule is very hard. UConn. St. John's on the road in New York. Seton Hall at home. At Providence. Bi-week game against Georgetown. At UConn versus Providence. And then you finish the season with a little tune-up game at Butler. So there are losable games in that stretch. Providence will have an opportunity, as much as I know you dislike them, to get involved in this thing in the Big East. Uh, I would just be frustrated if Gillespie is given Big East Player of the Year again. I can understand that. Um, I just don't know. Like... I think Julian Champagny is the best player in the league. I don't know if he's going to have the credentials to win it because St. John's, aside from him, Posh Alexander's not been consistent enough. There's just not a second guy that's frequently playing at an elite level, um, and that's frustrating because I, I would love to reward Champagny for what he's done and how good he's been consistently. But St. John's, like if they're not a tournament team – and ten and five, like they're they're gonna be on the bubble yeah. for 
I think they'll be on the bubble for February because they'll have opportunity. Like, if they beat the right teams in Big East play, they'll be in that conversation. Yeah. Nate Watson will be in the player of the year conversation as well. Uh, Liberty Freeman will be there as well just because of how much he scores the ball for Paul. And I guess we'll see. Enough with the Big East. Let's get out west. Return to our homeland. Okay. Oregon does something that's only been done once before. They beat two top five teams in a week, both on the road. Guess who the other team was? You will not get it. Um, it starts with a C. I'll give you that. A C. Man. I have no idea. Clemson, 1976. Wow. Noted basketball school, Clemson. Yeah. Guess who gave us that nugget? I, I, would, I would bet his name starts with a J. Yes, that's accurate. Uh, shout out, Jared. But it proves again. I mean, the disparity is insane. I tweeted this out. Um, Jared Burson actually liked this tweet, so that's a big flex. But I tweeted this out yesterday because we pointed it out on the show, and it bore true again. The disparity is getting larger, not smaller, as Oregon continues to win games. Here is the number. This season, when Oregon is led in scoring by anyone not named Will Richardson or Jacob Young, they're three and six and are scoring sixty-one point seven points per game. They are seven and zero when Richardson or Young leads the team and scoring seventeen points per game more. Richardson goes for twenty-eight in this one. Oregon wins, and I think Will Richardson, because of what he's doing in the conference, is going to push Benedict Matherin for Player of the Year if this continues. I mean, okay, so I. Understand the value of Will Richardson. This is what we hoped he would be for the last two seasons. I'm the person who, when the pandemic started and we were doing Game of the Year reviews of the 2019-20 season, (laughs) was saying that I thought Will Richardson could be Pac-12 Player of the Year the next year or maybe the year after. Um, And I I was leaning more toward the next year than I was this season. With that being said, I think that the gap, uh, especially given that UCLA lost to Oregon, and lost in relatively underwhelming fashion coming back and, and then going to overtime, getting a second chance, and then still losing it. I think Benedict Matherin has a significant gap between him and the field. I, I get that he wasn't good against Utah, and then he got picked up by Tubelis in a game that they didn't have Kirk Creesa on Saturday night, and Utah stinks. <laughs> but when I like, just think about what Will Richardson's knock – the knock of losing to Arizona State, the knock of losing to Arizona State for Oregon. Um, if if Oregon was five and one and twelve and five in overall, five and one, five and one in league play, like we would think about them maybe winning this league. And at this point, I, the home court advantage that Arizona has of the McHale Center, I think, is going to be probably the determining factor in in them winning this league. Because if if you like UCLA lost a game that I firmly believe they lost because of an empty arena. And and I don't want to diminish the accomplishment of what USC did, but beating two top five teams in empty gyms is different than just beating two top five teams. You mean Oregon? Yes, Oregon against UC, USC and UCLA. Like yeah. What Oregon did is not necessarily as impressive as it... It's not as impressive of an accomplishment as what it could have been. Sure. Um, on paper, it looks extremely impressive. I think that they've vaulted themselves back into the tournament conversation. 
I ranked them this week. They're yeah, I, I know, <laughs> but they're going to have to really continue. Like they can't have any more speed bumps. the The bottom of this yep. league sucks, and you can't lose to Utah. You can't lose your rivalry game to Oregon State. You cannot be losing uh, to Arizona State if they do. They play again. I, I think that they do. Yeah, they come to they come to ASU on the seventeenth of February. Mm-hmm. Like if you lose to the nine through twelve part of this league, you are going to get you're going to pay the price. Yep. But if they string off a bunch of wins and and we know that you certainly sure. can because the league's not great, Oregon's going to be back in the tournament and they might not need a run in in Vegas to win the actual thing and get in the way that they did 3 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We've fully canvassed the country. Let's take a look at our stock portfolios, okay? Mhm. The teams that I was buying, Davidson, good, buzzer beater pretty much, win at Richmond, mm-hmm. tough one this week against VCU, we'll see what they do. Mm-hmm. Michigan State, not great guys, not great. Uh, they lose to Northwestern at home in a game they should have won, had a chance to get it to overtime, the free throw line, and they couldn't make their free throws. Uh, teams I held on, Oregon, that looks Pretty That's solid, pretty I would say, at this point in time. Uh, considering what they've just done, we just talked about that. Xavier, cool. Indiana, well, we need to see them play. Uh, and then Bama, looks good for me. How about you? I had my buy. One of them was Illinois. We'll see. They're in a dogfight we'll right see. now. They had a really impressive win on Friday night against Michigan. Um, uh, he, well... Hunter Dickinson against Michigan is yes. not a very impressive win at home. But they won comfortably in that game, uh, running away with it late. Um, who was my second bye? Why am I forgetting? Oh, man, you told me. Uh, okay, well, I'll just go to my holds. My holds were Kansas and Alabama. Alabama loses by two on the road. I'm still holding that stock. Some would say sell it at the price that you because of the price you bought it at was Final Four. Um, I'm holding, trying to trying to make up my make my losses a little bit less. Kansas uh, looks good, first place in the Big Twelve at this point. They can only get better. Jalen Wilson had 23 points, career high on Saturday against West Virginia, eight rebounds, five assists. He was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, they can only get better. David McCormick was incredible, first person, first player in the Bill Self era at KU to have 10 offensive rebounds in a game. Um, he had 15 and 10. His offensive rebounding is now he's the second rated offensive rebounder in the country. I think that um, the 29th of January sets up for a very interesting matchup of the defensive glass cleaning of Oscar Shibway against the offensive rebounding of David McCormick. I think oh, wow. that's a fascinating, fascinating game to be, to be played in Lawrence. Um, and they can only get better if Remy Martin comes back and is healthy and is yeah, is what we think that he thing. should be. That's a huge thing for them. My cells were LSU, who I'm extremely, extremely happy to have sold, um, sold stock on. They immediately lose, and and that was not the not the most shocking thing to me. Um, and then USC, who immediately lost to Oregon. Yep. So I feel pretty good. USC is way down in the predictive metrics, way down in the AP poll. Um, I think that a lot of people have come around on the realization that USC has not necessarily been the most impressive. Resume-wise, they haven't necessarily 
been crushing people all season long. They're down to 16 in the AP poll. They're down to 24 in Ken Palm. So I think USC is is a team that was briefly in the top five, briefly, briefly in the top 10. Probably going to end up, if I had to pick at this moment, going to be a six or seven seed in the NCAA tournament is my guess. I'm racking my brain to think who your other buy was. I... Maybe if I just look at the... Oh, Villanova. And they crushed Butler. Okay, that... Good job. They did what they were supposed to. Like, sure. good no, teams should... No, it's true. It's, again, largest margin of victory they've ever achieved in the Big East. That's important. Um, let's take a look at some of the big games coming up this week. Already we are well into Purdue and Illinois, which is the main game of relevance today. Uh, coming up, though, in the week, you've got a couple interesting ones. Which ones are you circling as... Points of intrigue, must-watch appointment television. Um, I, I think I'm going to have big eyes on LSU-Bama just because of what that means about Alabama to continue. Iowa State at Texas Tech uh, tomorrow night should be an interesting one. I think we saw what Texas Tech was able to do or what they were not able to do against Iowa State the first time that they played in, in Hilton Coliseum when – Texas Tech played seven guys, mm-hmm. didn't have Shannon, didn't have McCullough. They should have both of them back. Tennessee-Vanderbilt is a very interesting one because Vanderbilt has shown to be a competent team this year. Getting them at home, top 25 in-state matchup, I'm super intrigued. And then can Indiana get over the hump on Thursday night? Can they beat Purdue at home for the first time, I think, in the last like 12 tries? It's 2,100-plus days at this point, closing in on 2,200. So that is a massive game for the Hoosiers. Yeah, it's the best chance they've had to beat Indiana probably. Beat Purdue. It, or, yes. Yeah, jeez, man. Just uh, reverse These them. pre-noon pods are just really messing with my brain. But another one, Duke could slip up. Florida State could beat Duke at home. Mm-hmm. A place where Florida State has a lot of success. They've won their last three. Starting to get the ship turned a little bit. Leonard Hamilton's too good a coach to just have it go down the drain, I think. So, Duke could get got in that game. I wouldn't be surprised. USC heads on the road to Colorado, who looks maybe a tournament team. Maybe. Uh, If they get this win, it would go a long way to helping that. So, that could be a tough spot for USC. An interesting place to look at. Okay, will they be able to have the wherewithal to fix it and get back right? I picked Colorado to win that game. You did. For game picks. Um, And then Baylor at West Virginia, like you mentioned, I just want to see what Baylor does Mm -hmm. in response to this. So those are some of the best ones. Uh, Iowa State and Texas Tech, I think we both are of the camp that Iowa State's going to be a team that, you know, is a lot more lethal at home. Significantly more lethal at home than on the road. 4-1 Gabe Kausher just goes nuclear. Yes. Gabe Kausher, Big 12 freshman or newcomer of the week this year, or this week. Um based off of his impressive performance against Texas. I And I, who knew? Just had to call him out for being a 24% three-point shooter, and then he was like, all right, I'll just be a flamethrower yeah. on Saturday against Texas. If that doesn't show you that he is a devoted listener of this show, I don't know what does. Let's do scholarships and sanctions to get out of here. Um, my scholarship is to – my first scholarship is to Dana Altman just because of the impressiveness of – doing historic things, beating two top five teams on the road in the same weekend. I know I... I believe that got him above 700 career wins, too. The UCLA win was the 700th yep. career win of his career. So my first one is to the Rubik's Cubes of Dana Altman. Uh, 
I am going to give a scholarship to Drew Valentine, who is at 30 years old, the youngest head coach to lead a team to the AP Top 25 since Todd Bozeman. That was 25, or no, math is hard, 29 years ago in 1993. 1993 feels closer than 29 years ago, you would think, but... Maybe not. Um, my second scholarship, I don't know if it's a scholarship or if it's a sanction, um, is Fiery Bill Self dropping F-bombs in press love conferences. It, love it, love it, love it. Um, there was some, I would say, scary rumors to some people that the end of the Remy Martin tenure, uh, collegiate experience, was going to happen on Saturday uh, or was going to happen shortly after because of the knee injury slash him not getting along with the coaching staff. Um, Some people were putting out hearings. Bill Self heard those hearings and said that he knows a hell of an effing lot more than some people. Not on politics or world news, but on some things, and this is something that he knows more about. Um, I think that could be a a tide changer for KU because – Bill does the weird like build people up, tear people down thing. And he's been building up David McCormick all year long because he wants to build his confidence. And I think he's been tearing down Remy a lot and kind of trying to take away his Bobby Hurley habits. But I think this was, and then he finished the comment with saying, we need Remy, we need him healthy and we need him to be his best for us to be our best. And I think that was kind of like the beginning of the build back up. So I will say sanction to, uh, the hearings and the scho- haters, yeah, and the haters and scholar. That was a, re- a wild message to the haters, yeah, from Bill Self and scholarship for the message to the haters. Yes. So, uh, sanction here to scorekeepers. You see this? I I think I've seen this, but it might so, be a di- I might have a different scorekeeper. At the start of the Fresno State UNLV game, the ball got batted out of bounds off the tip off. Mm-hmm. Shot clock operator took it from 30 seconds to 20 seconds in this instance, which yielded the fastest shot clock violation in the history of college basketball at only 24 seconds on the first possession of the game. I cannot believe this was not protested. Like, how did how did everyone on a coaching staff and all five players on the court not realize that a, coach, that a shot clock violation within the first 20 seconds of the game is not possible? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. Um... I don't think I have anything else. I'm going to give one last sanction. Okay. Sanction to Rick Barnes for just totally mismanaging your roster. Okay. Uh, Tennessee does not play. I, I mean, Rick Barnes is one of the great head coaching, uh, I, I guess, installations that we've got. Oh, my God, Jaden Ivey. Uh, <laughs> that was an unnecessarily aggressive block. But when you watch Tennessee play – He's trying to play like his roster is that of the one he had two, three years ago with Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield, trying to feed the post. Everything starts from the block, and he just doesn't have the personnel to do it. He's recruited guards, five-star guards, every year, and yet he insists on feeding the ball to Euros Plavsic, or however you say his name. Uh, you know, They were saying it a little differently than I had heard it said in the past uh, on the broadcast. And just do, playing too many guys and... You know, there are some things, some actions I would like to see them run. 
Tennessee that I think would be a lot more helpful for them. They used to do a lot of stuff initiating from the high post, letting guards cut to the vacated space. They don't really do that right now. It's just it doesn't feel like this Tennessee team is going to achieve what they could with Rick Barnes managing his roster the way he has. Justin Powell should probably start over Vescovy. I think Vescovy, I've always envisioned him more as like a super six-man. Just, I think Tennessee could be so much better than they are right now. I would agree. It feels like the reverse of some points in the North Carolina tenure when they had bad guards and have tried to go through guards more than their bigs specifically last year when Caleb Love was not great and they would force feed uh, him getting a bunch of looks rather than trusting Baycott and other big guys on their team. So, yeah, I, I Rick Barnes, I, I don't necessarily – I don't know how much better Tennessee can get or who else they can get to be better, but he's just not utilizing his personnel as we would hope that he would. Um, my last thought – I get to go watch the two worst teams in Pac-12 play basketball in two hours, and I'm very excited. So that is where I will end. Um, Utah ASU on the Pac-12 networks. Check out all the content on Devil's Digest and read my story post-game. It should be a good one. I don't envy you. All right, this has been Heat Check. We will see you in studio in Bill Austin on Wednesday. Thanks for watching. Sunday or Monday, you know that we flex. True. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. Get it to the top of the top of this. You can never reach uh, these hoes. in the booth and we spin the truth. Aye. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. You. Ooh, flow so high so you know Aye. I had to run it back. Blazes apart and we run it like a running back. Gabe brought chalk so you know Aye. we have it from with that. Turn you in the off so you know Aye. it ain't no coming back. Now we done with that. <laughs>